you seem so at peace. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yes. And I, while I'm talking to you, I look out at the sea oh. right underneath me. So it's like, oh, that's fantastic. Are, yeah. We got, we got orcas and um, minky whales right underneath me here. I mean, they just come in and out and it's always very, very amazing. I mean, some people in Shetland say, oh, you'll get used to it. I don't think we'll ever, will, because we're not born here, but you get all these beautiful pods of orcas, sometimes like 16 of them and whatnot. Prosit, Mela. Break over. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot I want to ask you, but then. Welcome to season three of the Treasures from Malta podcast, a podcast series produced by Fondazione Patrimonio Malti. I am Francesca Balzan, an artist and art historian who goes back a long way with Patrimonio. In this podcast, I meet some of Malta's living treasures. In seasons one and two, we had conversations with fascinating people, with artists, historians and art collectors with some Malta connection. And in season three, we will continue to meet more. We hope you enjoy it. There are so many ways to describe my guest today, perhaps because he has achieved so much in his chosen art, that of music. Or maybe I should actually call it sound. He is a multi-percussionist, a composer, an improviser, a multimedia artist, a field recordist, a sound designer, and an arts collaborator. In essence, he is a sound artist who seems to have no restrictions, such as his versatility and the extent of his experimentation. Literally every and any particular sound can be turned into music in his hands. His practice has taken him all over the world, collaborating with persons working in all the arts, from the visual to the performative to the written word. He has set up arts organizations, he has directed music festivals, and he has been invited to take up prestigious roles, such as musician-in-residence at the Sonic Arts Research Center. He has also been appointed National Ambassador to the European Union's Year for Intercultural Dialogue. He has performed in major international festivals and venues. He's a recording artist and he has written music for film, dance companies, museums, and art exhibitions. Renzo Spiteri, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hi, Francesca, and thanks for having me on this podcast. First off, Renzo, where are you talking to us from? I'm talking to you from Shetland, <laughs> right up in the Northern Hemisphere. So far away from us in Malta. Renzo, yes. do you come from a musical family? No, not really, um, surprisingly enough. I've been asking myself this question um, many times. It's like, where does this passion come from? And although I don't come from a musical family, I come from a family who has always encouraged me and my siblings to sort of follow our, our dreams and desires. And there was something in me that, that sparked this interest and passion for music and the arts. What's your earliest memory of making music? My earliest memory of making music is actually turning every toy that I had into some form of percussive instrument. I used to have these um, pencils and I used to just hit 
hit things. That must have been my favorite pastime, really and truly. I used to, I remember getting all these toys and trying to see whether they, they have a jingly sound or whether they can rattle and whatnot. And then I would just hit them with, with pencils. And by the time I had these two pencils, which I still have to this very day, um, and they were like my constant companions. So I think those were my earliest, earliest memories. But then moving on, where did you train or study to become a musician? There was a part of me where I was trying to learn certain, certain things on my own. And then I also wanted to start studying a bit more seriously in, in, in a more structured manner. So I started at the School of Music with uh, Charles Gatt, um, and he instilled in me a certain passion and interest for certain kinds of music. And I was studying a lot of like drums and uh, drum kit stuff, but I also had this sort of passion and interest in, in the wider percussion world. Um, so I started discovering certain instruments and, um, and techniques myself. And this was pre-YouTube facilities and all the <laughs> internet stuff that is so readily available nowadays. So it was quite, quite challenging. But I used to go to all these concerts uh, um, where foreign bands used to come to Malta and perhaps bring like exotic instruments with them. And I would just be there absorbing everything and then go home and try and replicate or imitate and see how sounds are produced. So there was a part of me which was sort of within an educational framework and a part of me which was like a self-discovery process. So school of music and then did you proceed anywhere to study further? Yes, yes, I did. Um, so, so after, after the School of Music, and I could see that this sort of interest was growing increasingly um, in me with massive distraction towards the more sort of common uh, school subjects that one should be studying. Um, <laughs> I decided that I wanted to continue with a university degree in music. And after that, I went on to study for two years in Italy, and I did um, performance practice there. Um, and that was really sort of very, very, very challenging because I had two very demanding tutors who were really demanding a lot out of me, which is great. But apart from that, I started meeting a lot of new musicians and touring with bands and recording stuff. So that really got me going then. Now, obviously, the name Renzo Spiteri is absolutely synonymous with percussion. But what does percussion actually encompass? Are we looking at anything from pencils to drum kits? The good thing about percussion is that it's so wide and it can be, it can be anything really, because if you're, if you're capable of turning an object into an instrument, that can become you know, a percussive instrument. But the percussion family in itself is so, is so broad because a lot of countries, I mean, percussion is embedded with on their within their history and within their culture. So Africa would have its own, its own identity and idiom through to percussion playing and India and South America and all these, and all these countries. And they all have a vast amount of, of instruments. So you can really delve very, very deep into the amount and diverse percussion instruments. But then it could be everyday objects, found, found objects. I mean, you can turn a metal sheet into, into a percussive thing because it creates thundery sounds and special effects and whatnot. So it's a beautiful, vast, vast world and sort of literally the sky's the limit 
with whatever you can do. Now, I've always wondered, how, how do you choose the type of music or your favorite instrument to kind of build your musical career on? I mean, when did you choose? Let's take you and what was your journey? I think music chooses you rather than you choose music. I can't recall ever sitting down and say, I want to be playing this music and not that music. And I think that's because through opportunities that I came across or that were offered to me, I could try a lot of things and then see what resonates most with me. So there were things that I've tried. And I said, I can't see myself investing time, energy and study into something, but then something else, yes. So like many, like many young guys, I started off by playing in, in rock bands. And in my time, there was like this very active hub in Tinian's Lima, where a lot of bands used to meet and we used to play in each other's um, rehearsal rooms and whatnot. And there used to be a couple of rock festivals. One of them used to be held at Tinian itself, and one of them used to be held at the Marsa Sports Ground. And they were really huge for that time because there used to be a lot of people, probably because there weren't many options where people could actually see a lot of like live bands coming together. Renzo, we're speaking about the 80s here. Yes, late 80s onwards. But then I discovered the world of jazz and improvisation, and that took me on a new creative journey. And that opened up a lot of possibilities to me. But at the same time, I was also interested in playing um, classical stuff. So I was playing also with, with the National Orchestra, which at the time was called the Manuel Theatre Orchestra, which was good while it lasted. But while I was, I was getting really restless because I wanted to pursue my own solo career and do my own things. So I'm still interested in a lot of different um, genres of music. But I think the two things that really taught me the most was the sort of discipline within structured music, like classical music, and the more improvised situations within the jazz environment and things that I started producing mm -hmm. as a percussion player, wanting to bring percussion to the, to the foreground, so to speak. Do you remember the Sunday evening sessions at Mystique, where you were very involved in those with the Marquis Chicluna? I actually had to sneak in a couple of times <laughs> to see some of those wild sessions, um, <laughs> basically because I was too young. I did go a couple of times. I remember there was one time when Marquis Chicluna had got an African band to play at the Mediterranean Conference Center. I can't remember the name right now, but they were a really great band. And it was one of those situations, like I mentioned before, where I was there and I was just fascinated by the whole array of instruments and this language of music and the vibrant atmosphere that there was on stage. And the next day, they were meant to do like a jam session at his place. And I just got to know that these guys were going to be playing again. And at first, said, oh, you can't come, you can't come. But then I found someone who actually sneaked me in and I could, I could stay there for, for a couple of hours. And it was just, just amazing. And then I had to sneak out again just to get the bus back home and, <laughs> and pretend that it's like, uh, no, 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 I wasn't there at all. <laughs> <laughs> These yeah. are the formative memories, I suppose. Oh, you yes. What you're inclined to, really, what, you know, what music you want to play. Thank yes, you. yes, yes. And I had this sort of this massive, massive drive that I wanted to be doing music. And everyone at school, when I was in my early teens, telling me, 
yeah, I mean, but there's no such thing, you know. I mean, people don't do this as a living. And I used to talk also to a couple of teachers at St. Louis yes. College, where I, um, I used to attend school. And they used to tell me, you know, try and find some kind of career path and do this as a sideline thing. I was like, I can't think of anything else, really. I really can't. Um, uh, but it was something that built in me really, really gradually, so to speak. You're living proof that the arts can be a career, and they're more than a career, actually. They're a passion that, that carries you through life. They're everything. And Absolutely. if you work hard enough, I mean, you can make ends meet you on the basis of art as well. So that's you as a musician playing on kind of the more mainstream musical instruments and, of course, particularly the drum. But there's far more to your practice and we need to find out. At present, you work and you live in the Shetlands. There are a group of islands which are off the coast of Scotland. And if we were to draw a triangle, then the points of the triangle are the Faroe Islands, Norway and Scotland, and the Shetlands are exactly in the middle of that triangle. Now, tell me why you find yourself there. In 2018, we were living in Oxford. And while I was there, I decided to do a master's in sound art. And I was working on some very, very interesting and challenging projects while I was in Oxford. As one of these projects, I wanted to work in a very remote place, in a very remote part of the UK as a contrast to Oxford, which is quite a busy, busy city. Um, so one evening, me and Gabby literally just sat down in our sitting room, and I was looking at the map of the UK, and there was this speck of island right up at the tip, northernmost part of, and it was called Shetland, and we had never been there, and to be honest with you, we had never heard of it and paid no attention whatsoever to it. So I said, why not try and go there and see and see what it's like to work on this project that I had in mind. It was really very much in my head what I wanted to do. I just wanted to find the right place that fits the idea that I had in my mind. So um, I came to Shetland. I came to Shetland for a week, which was for me like a familiarization orientation period, just to see what these islands are like and what they can offer. And I came here and I could really experience what I was after, which was this, this minimalist um, landscape and soundscape, um, which really, really not took me by surprise, but it took me a couple of days to tune into because it's such a particular place. And from then on, I was so excited by the possibility of, 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 of working here that I went back to Oxford and I was determined to try and make this project happen, which was a sound installation, um, which I wanted to do as a contrast to the busy environment within Oxford. So then came back between June and July of that same year. And it, it was like, we literally fell in love with the place. And then we kept on contemplating whether we should move here or not. And that took about a year. But then we decided, because we kept coming and going, and then we decided, yeah, um, we would really like to, to sort of spend time here and kind of settle here. And that's why we are here. So after you completed your master's at Oxford Brookes University, you moved yeah. to Shetland, essentially. Yeah. Well, um, I, we spent a year contempla contemplating about the idea. So we moved away from there and were living in the Yorkshire Dales for for uh, for a year which is a beautiful place i mean it's just an amazing place 
but I was missing the sea. Um, I'm very much connected, of course, coming from Malta. An island boy. Yeah, yeah, uh, very much. And I love the sea and I love to work with, with the sea as an element and as a source of inspiration. And Shetland just offered that and much more because it's, it's a group of islands. I mean, inhabited islands are um, 16 islands, but it's like 22,000 people in all who live. It yeah. feels very remote and really sparsely populated. In fact, I've been following your social media and the posts you put up show a wild landscape, extremely beautiful, but it seems to be almost untouched by man. And I really do wonder sort of how do, what does it feel like for you uh, to be so far away from major musical hubs like London? I've always connected with major hubs in a way that I could go and do my thing and move out of it because I was never really a city person. So wherever wherever I've lived, apart from from Milan, where I was staying while I was studying in Italy, um, I've never really been too keen on living in 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 cities because I need I need that kind of balance between my own space and my own quiet quiet place to be and going into these really busy hubs to perform and to connect with other people or maybe record um, or rehearse. But I've always sort of managed to keep away from that. And by time with travel and connectivity and whatnot, it became easier for me to anyway keep connected. So even when we were living more towards the southern part of the UK, we could just cross over um, by, by ferry over to France and here in mainland Europe. And from there, I could be performing in, in Berlin or in Paris or in Rome or wherever it is. So it, it's still kind of pretty easy. As things stand at the, at the moment, and because of COVID, I kind of feel quite, quite, quite blessed by the fact that it was a really safe place to be rather than being in a city where like people that I know had been locked into their small flats and really feeling totally unwell about the idea and um, it was so disturbing to kind of chat with them over Zoom and whatnot and see their mental state and whatnot. While here, you could still go out and walk for two, three hours and not meet one person, you know. No danger of COVID whatsoever. (laughs) No, no, no. And people still respected the fact that you needed to keep a certain distancing and, you know, people were being in their own retreat, so to speak. But you could still go out and about and do your thing because sure. of, of this sparse population and the way things, things work. Uh, I think people here in Shetland were very disciplined about the fragility of a small population living on these islands. That if it had to become a widespread situation, then it would be quite a threat to the population itself. Absolutely. Now, Renzo, you've been described as follows. When composing music for contemporary dance companies, art exhibitions and a film and moving image, Renzo uses a sonic environment around him as a primary source of raw material that not only sets the tone to his work, but is also a powerful source of inspiration. Can you expand on this? How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) To, to give you a very brief answer. So as part of my musical development, um, so apart from my interest in, in drums, percussion, and sort of the musical world, um, I, by time, like 12, 15 years ago, I started becoming really interested in, in, in the natural environment around us and how 
does that natural environment um, affect or can affect our creative output? So I started becoming more sort of immersed in sounds and trying to listen to sounds around me and try and incorporate those sounds within, within the music or soundscapes that I was trying to create. And at the point in time, I started questioning my own sort of contribution because I was hearing so much richness of textures around me from the natural world. It's like, does the world really need my, my own intervention because this is just good enough? And that gave me a new and revised perspective to my, to my music. And as a person who I'm always trying to regenerate ideas within myself and never trying to settle for one particular thing, this sort of put me a bit on this balancing beam of what is my work in respect of the bigger picture of the sound world that we live in. And, and by the time I think these sounds that I started listening to and recording and I started investing in a lot of very good equipment to, to be able to record the minutest of sounds and even sounds that are naked ear can't actually listen if we don't have a device like sounds from under um, the sea level or in seabeds or in whatever. It kind of really enriched my, my musical language and musical and creative tools, so to speak. So the incorporation of these things within my music is what I'm talking about in that quote. Okay, so let's hear an example of a field recording that you made in winter of last year. So we've just heard an example of the sonic environment of Shetland, something that is really particular to Shetland. Now, can you break this down for us? What is it that we've just heard? Okay, so um, that's a really particular sound event um, that I had been waiting for for quite, for quite a while. Um, we had quite a um, prolonged period of snow and ice last year here in Shetland. And, and the lochs around us were getting really to a frozen state where there was this really thick ice developing. Um, so it became quite a solid mass. And I was just hoping that at some point in time, the temperature would, would rise high enough for these ice surfaces to start breaking. And I was really monitoring them on a daily basis, like going in the morning, late mornings, then in the afternoons, before it gets really, really dark by like, half to three o'clock and see whether there were any changes. And there was one particular late morning where finally one of the lochs started breaking up. And these, and because it was very, very windy, these ice plates started moving against each other and rubbing against each other. And this particular sound, it just reminded me of a muted wind chime, but a gigantic wind chime because this, this loch, particular one, which isn't far away from where we live, was producing this magnificent sound. So ran back to my car, got all my recording gear out and put in these hydrophones, which are microphones which you 
put in the water and you can record sounds from underneath water levels. And I recorded that sound, which is the rubbing of ice plates against, against each other. And a lot of people who heard that sound, because I've used them in a few performances, they would think that I've actually recording squeaking doors <laughs> and because they sound very much like that. And in actual fact, it's not. It's, it's a very particular sound event, really. And I was so, so pleased to be able to capture it in that way. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm familiar to all of us because it's impossible for us to hear that raw sound. Um, uh, in your case, you, pro- you placed a hydrophone in the water, so there's no way that we could ever hear that sound with our ears. Not really. Yeah, not really. Not <laughs> really. <years> before. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that was the raw sound, untweaked, not, not edited in any way. Now, how have you integrated it into a piece of music? That, that particular sound was, was really something that I thought of, like, how can I use it in a piece of music where I can still maintain that kind of particular texture? And at the time, I had been commissioned to write a piece of music for a festival that I was supposed to play um, and participate in, but obviously because of COVID, it was cancelled. It was postponed, actually. Um, and it was called Dark Skies Festival. And the artistic director asked me, would you... Uh, want to write a piece of music that people can listen to in a very particular sort of environment that reflects your own um, area, Shetland. So I thought that that would be a really appropriate situation where I could use that sound and other sounds that I recorded between March and February of last year. And I composed a piece of music which was called um, Under Dark Blue Skies, And it really reflects a particular mood that we have during the months of February and March when the days are still very, very short and it's really cold, but sometimes you get these beautiful shades of blue in the sky and they stay on for quite, quite a while. And if you're dressed well enough and you want to experience that sort of outdoors, it's such such an amazing feeling of this stillness, cold, and yet such a natural beauty. So, So the piece of music which I believe was about a 16-minute, 18-minute piece, really embodied and characterized all these qualities. So let's hear Underdog Blue Skies, and let's hear the piece which really brings in the original recording and what you did with it and turned it into a piece of music. And so during your time in Shetland, you've also co-founded the arts organization Curious Pilgrims. 
What is it all about? So um, Curious Pilgrims um, was, was a company that myself and my partner Gabby formed. And as, as timing goes, within a month that we had formed it, we were in lockdown. <laughs> so we couldn't <laughs> get too active um, with, with this company, but we still managed to do a certain amount of work. And it's basically a company which focuses a lot on community-based work, where we bring together arts, nature, and well-being within the projects that we do. So when I talk about nature, like for example, we've done projects where we've organized groups of people and giving them recording devices and we go out and about and listen and record the sounds. And then we do these collective um, compositions, so to speak. Or recently, we've done African drum workshops for people from all over Shetland to come in one place and, and just have fun. It's a matter of getting together. And in a way, we wanted to start injecting all these ideas as a way of getting people out and about and to um, meet and to talk. So we always have these breaks and people come along with home bakes and cakes and teas and whatnot. So mm -hmm. it turns out into a very social event. But Curious Pilgrims is really and truly um, a company that really focuses on these elements of how we can incorporate creativity, nature, and, and well-being into whatever we're, we're trying to create. And, and people have been responding so positively to all the initiatives um, that we've put up and things that we're at the moment planning for the remainder of this year and hopefully for years to come. But I, I see that you've been acknowledged and recognized and awarded funds from a number of national arts organizations as well. Yes. Last, last year, we, we were awarded a community award from, um, from an association here for the work that we're doing during lockdown because we live on one of the islands, not on mainland Shetland, but on an island off the mainland Shetland. And because we couldn't organize um, any of the events, we thought of other ways that we could contribute to the community. So during lockdown, we found out that there were a lot of people who couldn't actually cross over from our island to mainland Shetland with the ferry, with the ferry crossing that we have, which is like a six-minute ferry crossing, um, to get their medicine and, and prescriptions. So, so we decided to um, offer this service on voluntary basis and would, being a pharmacist also, would collect um, medicine and prescriptions and go around um, our island and just distribute them to people and just leave them um, just inside their doors so that they don't have to travel back and forth. Some people just actually couldn't do it, physically couldn't do it. And others were dependent on people to bring it over to them. But because of restrictions, there wasn't much travel going on. So, um, yeah, we offered this voluntary service for, for quite a number of months. So every day we would get the car, do the rounds, and make sure that everyone is well supplied with their personal personal sort of medical needs. Very good of you to do that. Let's take a break while we hear from a silence within that you recorded in Shetland. Now, just before we go to the break, can you briefly tell me about it? So from a silence within um, is inspired by yet another island, which is very close to the island where we live, and it's called Nos. And Nos is nowadays uh, a very important bird sanctuary. Um, and it's 
yet again another amazing spot spot around Shetland. And I go, I I walk there very very often, and I would just sit by the sea there and look across um, the little distance that there is between our island and the island of Moss, and the particular atmospheres of that of that place really inspired me to write this piece of music as a reflection of the of the beauty um, that it offers. And you can just sit there for hours on end and there's no distraction whatsoever. And in summer, you get like over 60,000 birds who live there and because it's like, a, let's call it a meeting point for birds to breed. And it becomes very, very active. And it's only in summer that people can actually um, cross. It's a very short crossing with a rubber dinghy. And you can walk and spend your day there and then, and then sort of return because it's uninhabited. So from a silence within um, is, is really a reflection of this place. Don't forget to go to our podcast page on www.patrimonio.org to see pictures and links and even recordings of what we've discussed in each podcast episode. So, Rinto, let's talk about your other ongoing project, Sound Migrations, which brings in the sound recorder side of your practice. It seems to me to be kind of a, a personal journal of sound, sort of like an artist, a visual artist recording his diary entry with a daily sketch. You seem to record what you're experiencing in your environment and in Shetland or even in Malta or wherever you happen to be with kind of these sonic recordings. And I saw them on this website of Sound Migrations, but there was one in particular that really struck me. It actually amused me. It was the sound of the bubbles created by the engine of the Gozo boat the bubbles yeah. underwater, um, that you recorded with your hydrophone. Now, tell me about this project, the project of sound migrations, and what you do with all these recordings, ultimately. Um, sound migrations is really like a database, as you said. Um, so, so I have like two websites. So one website, which is rentsospital.com, which is more like the sort of the more musical side of things, and sound migrations, which is more the sound-based work that I do. And, and because I'm always carrying a recording device with me wherever I go and wherever I travel because you never know what you can meet. And it's a bit like people taking photos with their phones. I, I capture images through sounds with, with, with devices. And some of these sounds, I would put them up on sound migrations and perhaps they would sit there for a while and at some point in time, I might come across an idea where I would want to use these sounds and incorporate them in my music. Um, but Sound Migrations, as, as a website and as a project, also focuses on the fact that it's a way for me to, to connect with other people who are doing 
the same sort of um, artistic work and without telling them, go on a website where part of it is music and part of it is sound-based stuff, there's a more focused um, platform where people can look into, into my practice as a, as a sound recordist, as, as someone who listens to the world and wants to produce work as, as a response to these experiences. So it's sort of very representative of that sort of creative process, so to speak. Renzo, we've been kind of circling around the subject, but I'm going to ask you this directly now. When is a sound music? And when is it purely sound? And is there a difference? And do you require your audience to distinguish between the two? That is a very hard question. Um, I, I personally believe, but, but this is a very personal perspective, Nowadays, from where I stand, I mean, sound, sound is music and music is, is sound, basically. Because to me, the world is like an orchestrated sound. And it's a bit like listening to different movements within a piece. So you have um, a movement which is a calmer movement and a movement which is sort of more vibrant and the tempo is really fast and it's big sounding. It's a bit like listening to a Stravinsky piece, you know, where there's this beautiful, high sounding percussive stuff. And there's a lot of business in the texture. And to me, the word is like that orchestrated sound and Shetland has got a very transparent um, musical and sonic environment to it. And if you go to a place, I don't know, we mentioned London, it has all these sound events happening into each other. And that to me is like this busy um, sound movement. So from, from where I stand, there's no particular difference between, the bo- between both because I do try and integrate those two worlds into whatever I've been doing for the past few years. And with regards to the audience, I'm really happy when at times... I got audience feedback where people talk about the interweaving of sound and music into something which is a whole, you know? Um, So there's no real distinction because one needs another. A a musical texture needs a sonic um, sound to it and vice versa. So in that respect, I don't see any distinction. they're both very important in my in my in my musical and artistic language nowadays they are both very 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 important elements so i don't really distinguish between the both Renzo, let me take you back a few years in 2019 patrimonio put on the exhibition music in malta and you were very involved in it you created a soundscape that encompassed your interpretation of ancient sounds and sound makers for the exhibition you also composed music you field recorded as well and you oversaw the sound design of the whole audio guide as well as putting on a live performance, which is part of the program of events surrounding that exhibition. Can you run me through that project? I mean, what was your brief and how did you take off from it to develop the music? Um, That was an amazing experience. Um, Really one of those situations where I was working within a great team of people. And the brief was basically all the areas that you mentioned. and 
I remember when we had quite a lot of production meetings and the thing started really shaping up, there was a certain complexity to it and a, and a massive challenge, as you know well enough, because you are also um, part of that. And the idea behind it of putting together an exhibition which takes us from, from the most ancient um, evidence of the presence of music in Malta to the first vinyls and anything in between that was to me totally enriching. But to come back to your question, because I could talk about this exhibition for, for hours. Um, so I was, I was overseeing a lot of aspects um, from, from presenting that music, like you said, but also from a technical point of view, because we wanted people to walk through the space that was redesigned and have these headphones on, which triggered different histories and different sound events or music events along the years. And that was, that was really, really, technically it was really challenging, but we had very, very good people to work on that. Um, it took a very long time to put together, but I think it was really rewarding, rewarding in the end. And I came in with all the experience and knowledge that I had, and still, as always, you learn, you learn new things. So even in composing the new piece, um, I went to Tachanch and recording, you know, rocks which have a particular resonance to them, which I incorporated in the first piece that people walk in. But I also put together the whole, the whole um, uh, commentary and sounds that come to it, balancing each thing, making it really, really work. Um, of course, we had technical people who are helping us. So it was a massive, but very rewarding, very rewarding challenge, I would say. Now, Renzo, it's been said of you that you have a unique sonic signature. What is a sonic signature? And what makes yours different from other sound artists? A sonic signature is a bit like having your, your personal fingerprint on, on, on music in this particular case, because it could be in painting, in sculpture, on visual arts. In my, in my opinion, or from what I get as feedback, what I've managed to do is to integrate all these areas of fascination, be it the percussive world, which in my case, and luckily enough, is so diverse that anything and everything could be percussive and integrating those within my interest for, for natural sounds and my interest for, for harmonic and melodic structures and the interest of non-melodic non instruments and melodic instruments that I play, that I perform with, and that I can actually put together and present solo performances. And there's also my interest in, in the visuals and I like to film a lot and I like to take photos and use those as part of my visual element at times. And perhaps that would be my, my, my signature, I think. So I did not want to be just a percussion player doing my percussion stuff. I do that with a lot of musicians, but when it comes to my own language, I try to incorporate all these different ideas, all these different cultures and people that I've met along the way and all the places that I've traveled and been influenced by. So, so I think while I continue to enrich my, 
my creativity, I try to bring that into, into an event, a performance, an installation or whatever it is. Now, we've established that you make music or sound even with absolutely anything. And you've used a wide range of instruments. And I say instruments in inverted commas. But what was the most unusual or unexpected sound maker that you've used? Uh, uh, <laughs> there's been quite a few situations um, <laughs> where sometimes people, actually people, um, really push, push you to limits. Um, but I remember uh, when I was at the Sonic Arts Research Center in Belfast, which is an amazing place. It's quite a unique place um, where people research about sound and they sort of work with sound and technology at, at really, really high levels. And I was there for a period of five weeks working with some really big brains. But we from the performance, myself, and and two two composers and laptop artists and one of them Pedro Bello who is now the head of of the of the department asked me to perform a piece on a small carton box now a carton box can you can play on a carton box but what he wanted is that i use um, a double bass bow on it and he attached a microphone to it and the sounds that were being generated from it were something outwardly in, in a way that I remember, I remember sitting there for our first sort of experimentation with this little box and the microphone just attached to it and going through his, his software. And he gave me this double bass bond. He said, you just have to sort of go really slowly along the edges and we'll see what happens. And because where we were, there was this like circular formation of, of speakers around us. The sound that came back to us from this dome was the most unexpected thing ever. And we built a piece which was then performed and we toured with along with other pieces. Um, I can't remember the name of the, of the piece, but that was quite a feature because I remember at the point in time, I used to move to the center of the stage and sit on a drum stool and grab the small carton box, and people were always wondering, okay, what, what are you going to next? do with it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's yeah. inside it? <laughs> yeah, there was absolutely nothing inside it. It was just simple carton box and my double bass bow and this microphone attached to his computer and to his software. It was just amazing. <laughs> yeah. You really literally can make music with anything. <laughs> You describe yourself as an arts collaborator and you've worked closely with visual artists, with writers and others. That seems to me like a very generous kind of outward reaching approach to your art form. Now, were there any particularly striking and unusual collaborations that in effect produced surprising results? There have been, yeah, quite a few because I've been really lucky along the way to work, as you said, with so many different um, collaborators in different in different art forms, and obviously these things take you to different countries, different situations. Um, but I'm just remembering one particular case. Um, I was touring with with a very great musician from West Africa, and we were invited to play at this huge world music festival called Walnut, which is one of the most famous in the world. And they were about to do their first ever edition in South Korea. And so they got these bunch of musicians from all over the world. I think we were 80 and all, and they set us up in, 
in a hotel. And apart from presenting our own performances, we were asked if we wanted to do any impromptu performances, we could do those. But the, the official um, concerts were being held in these massive theaters and outdoor spaces, which was really, really great. And I remember there was one, one percussion player who at the time I was really following very, very, very closely, um, Trilogutu, who's an Indian percussion player, lives in Germany. But he taught me a lot just from listening to his stuff. And I knew that he was going to be there with his band. And I remember being on, on, on the plane going to South Korea with Gabriel saying, it would be really amazing if I could at some point in time get to meet the guy and have a chat with him about his music and the way that he sort of um, engages with a sort of East meets West sort of philosophy of his. Um, and we're like, oh, it will happen because we're all in the same, in the same hotel anyway. And must have been the third morning and we're having breakfast and the artistic director of the festival, a guy called Thomas, he came up to me and, and he said, you, um, we were thinking of doing a grand finale concert at the end of this event because it has been really, really successful and we want to do it in two parts. So one part will be like just percussion. And he said, and there are quite a few drummers and percussion around here. He said, and as, as an organizing um, body, we decided that you should be the artistic director of it. Oh, um, wow. I was like, I remember I stopped my breakfast and I didn't have any of that breakfast from there <laughs> on. And he said, you can choose from anyone and whoever. And I had this like a list of drummers and percussion players from all over the world, like Trilogutu from India, Joji Hirota from Japan, Nitin Shankar from India again. I mean, so I went up to these guys and I said, um, I've been asked with this thing. Would you like to be on board? It's like, yeah, if you want me to, it's fine, but you don't have to have me just because I'm so-and-so. Uh -huh. So I had to sketch out really small, like musical phrases and whatnot that I only had an hour to rehearse for this really big concert. And because I was working with these who's who, you know, this A-list of people, we ended up doing this concert, which lasted about an hour and 15 minutes and this huge, huge concert hall. And the things that were created was just amazing. I remember this sensation where I felt I was literally floating. I wasn't touching uh. the stage floor. And the result of it was so unexpected because we're just doing things on stage there and then. But the energy was just simply unique. It was really, really great. A real dream come true. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that I'm on stage with these guys and I'm actually telling them, you know, oh, we should be doing this and we should be doing that in an hour or so that we're rehearsing. And people are telling me, it's fine. You can just give me a triangle if you want and I'll be happy to be on board. Like, you know, these guys that I could do anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was, it was, it was the fact that I was there for, I mean, this massive festival was already a big thing for me. But being asked to be artistic director and one of the musicians on stage to play live with these, I think we are nine players, nine percussion players. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just amazing, I would say.
Sounds like it. Yeah. And talking about artistic direction, you've been artistic director of the annual music event, Teatro Unplugged in Malta, and you continue to collaborate with Maltese visual artists, poets, and even musicians, obviously. Um, but I'm particularly intrigued by one of your many Malta-based projects, and that was the one that related to the prehistoric hypogeum of Halsaflini. It started as a commission to create music for the audio guide of the, for the Hypergeum, but it took you on a sort of almost mystical journey that grew and grew from there. Now, we'll hear some of the resulting music soon, but first, I want you to tell me about the experience of listening to the site, of choosing the instruments to play, even of recording within this prehistoric underground site, which has its own marvelous acoustics, how did the spirit of place guide you? That again, I mean, that is a really beautiful chapter in my life, I would say. Um, that came quite unexpected and I was asked by Heritage Malta to, to work on the audio for the audio guide that people listen to up to this very day at, at, the, at the Hypogeum temples. And, and as you know, I mean, it is such a special and unique place in, in very many ways. And because of its particular acoustic phenomena, I was intrigued by it. And I had asked whether I could actually design the whole audio guide by working there. And obviously, because it was something a bit sensitive, it needed a certain particular consideration. And what will you be taking down? Was the kind of equipment and whatnot because of the atmospheric conditions that can change? In the controlled, strict controlled environment. Um, so in the end, I decided to keep things as simple as possible and as raw as possible. So for that um, particular audio uh, composition, I used a lot of raw materials like stone, clay, pieces of wood, and that created a whole, a whole composition and soundscape out of it. And I used to go there at night because of course during the day there would be sort of tourists would go there. And, but at night it's just completely still and a completely different feeling altogether because you're there on your own. And the more time I spent there, the more, the more I was losing track of time. So sometimes the guardian would be upstairs watching the small TV that he had, he would, come down and say, are you okay? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. It's like, because you've been here for hours. And then um, in the end, in the end, um, uh, the audio guide was finished, but then I decided to expand the project even further. And I did a lot of recordings in various other sites like Chikantia, Ardalan and other places. And that became a CD, which was, which is called um, Silent Sounds and Spaces. And, Again, I used to go evenings and nights to do my recording sessions and the whole energy just changes. And that again, taught me so much about what one can do as a response to particular sites. Do you spend time listening to the silence as well? Absolutely. Um, I think that my interventions are always based around silence. I, silence is a big part of what of what I do and what constitutes my music and my being also. I love to be in silence. I need to work in silence and I just love to spend time 
in silence because that's where you have a very clear mind and like can think think clearly um, and Shetland helps <laughs> helps mm -hmm. a lot in that respect in, in that respect also. But what about the silence of the temples? Were there sounds within that silence that could guide you to create your composition? Yeah, I think I think that the title of the CD really encompasses sort of the main ingredients because it's about the silence, the sounds that you hear within, and the spaces, as in physical spaces, but also the space that you generate in your head while you're doing certain certain works. Um, you can't go down to a place like like the hypogeum, which has this beautiful long reverberating sound, which is a natural phenomenon, and create something which has a busy texture to it because it's lost. There's no definition, whatever you try doing. So you have to play things which are so sparse and minimal, and even the material that you use has a certain impact on the end result itself. So those, those, those elements have worked even in Ardalam, I remember being in Ardalam and trying to find the right combination of sounds that I could orchestrate together to create one of the tracks which is featured in the CD. And it's almost by elimination and by spending time on your own and just listening even to the water drops. And it's like, oh, this could be really part of it. And it's only because of silence you can discover these, these sonic layers. Because if you go there and you don't give yourself time to open up to a space, then you're not going to relate to that space in the most honest manner. You've written an article in Treasures of Malta about the sounding aspects of these precious sites. So we really need to look through that as well. But let's go on to listen to Invocation, which is one of the pieces of music that you composed and you played on actual flower pots, on terracotta pots, which are basic material which would have been found perhaps even in prehistoric times. We know that clay was fired in prehistoric times. The track was recorded in the oracle chamber of the Tarshin Hypogeum. So let's listen to it. Renzo, you were artistic director of the Malta World Music Festival and you consistently produced a fantastic lineup of musicians. Are there any imminent events or projects that you're working on that we can experience in Malta soon? Um, not too soon, but yes, hopefully in the future. I'm just working on working on something at the moment um, where I'm hoping to bring back to Malta a piece of me and Shetland, um, so to speak, like a sonic postcard, perhaps. 
Um, but it's a project that I'm kind of working on and trying to see how to present that in sort of an interesting aesthetic manner. So uh, it will take some time, but hopefully I'll hit the shores with, with that project. Great. Look forward to that. Now, as a final question, Renzo, I'm going to ask you what objects do you have on your table right now? I have my my mug with some coffee that's gone a bit cold. I have my water bottle to keep me hydrated, some equipment. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a few things around me. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you why I'm asking you this. You must be wondering. Um, I'm going to show you an image mm-hmm. of an art piece by another Renzo. This time it's Renzo Piano. Oh. Hang on a second. I'm going to sh- share my screen. Okay, that's the Renzo Piano Parliament mm-hmm. Building, Valletta. And I'm going to ask you to use the objects on your table to describe what you're saying in oh sound. My. Go on, play to the building. Okay. Um, and I need to choose something which is on my table. Absolutely, yes. You can do it. <laughs> I'll take my, my water bottle. Um, that I drink from. It's an aluminium, it's an aluminium bottle. Um, it's a beautiful building, and I it, it, the the sides of it where it sort of has these sort of holes. It's a bit like a like a graphic score and a bit like a beehive to me. I've always I've always seen it that way. So um, I think I would go with sort of these sort of like points and 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 holes that there are it's like a graphic score and wow this is yeah nice challenge um so i'm playing my aluminium water bottle and i'm using one of my precious mallets that i play my vibraphone with so yeah here's a bit of an impromptu thing um (laughs) Absolutely fantastic. What fun to have an original piece of music created and played on the podcast. Thank you for that, Renzo. And thank you ever so much for your time, for sharing not only your wonderful music through the decades, but also your experience of living even now on Shetland and how this has worked into your music. Thank you once again. Thank you, Francesca, for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are pictures and links to all we've discussed on the Fondazione Patrimonio Malti website under the podcast section. That's www.patrimonio.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on your podcast player as this will help others find it faster. And please do remember to tell a friend about it. Until next episode, goodbye. Goodbye.